In this episode, we sit with Jen Fry of the Undergraduate Research Support Office at Duke University to discuss the meaning of identity and the benefits of more fully living into one's identity, regardless of the opposition that one may face. We hope you enjoy episode two in season two's Just Space podcast. about identity and mm-hmm. identity work this season on uh, the podcast, mm-hmm. particularly what identity means to you, identities that are salient, mm-hmm. potentially times when you felt like your identities conflicted with, with one another mm-hmm. and how you've negotiated your identities mm-hmm. in spaces that perhaps were not always just. Mm-hmm. And then what do you have to say to people who have identities in spaces that they feel like they cannot be themselves Mm -hmm. and the space is not fully just for them. Mm -hmm. So that sort of kind of gives you the land of sort of like what we're talking about. And so just to jump in, what what does identity mean to you, Jen? You know, so it's interesting. So kind of give the people listening idea. I'm a... I'm a black woman. I have a big afro. I have a nose ring. I have a full tattoo sleeve on one arm, and I have a tattoo on the right arm, which everyone who doesn't have tattoos asks me when I'm going to get the other arm sleeved. It's kind of interesting. Who I'm, If they want to, they can do a GoFundMe. I'm completely okay with that. Um, but identity to me is just what you believe you are um, in all aspects of it. Racially, you know, if, if you're um, like I have a white mom and I have a black dad, but when people talk to me, I'm black. Yes, I can say I'm biracial and what comes with that. But for me, I walk around in this world blackity black. Everything I do is through a black female lens. There is nothing that I do is through a multiracial lens. Not I just look at everything as a black woman because that's how I am perceived in America. And we can talk about, even worldwide, we can talk about, you know, social lenses and how people socialize and what they believe. And we can talk like all about that, but I walk through the world as a black female. When I travel overseas, when I've had people in China go and try and bear hug me and take pictures with me as a black female. They're not like, oh, she's multiracial, she's cool. A black, like this woman, like literally tried to keep hugging me to get in a picture with me. So like, I walk through this, as a black female. So to me, identity is who you are, who you believe you are through all of your lived experiences. You know, and I think a lot of times people want to decide other people's identities for them and say, no, well, you're this person. And it's like, no, I believe what I am. I might walk through this world as something, but this is who I believe I am. And so I think for me, identity is so fluid because if you would ask the Jen Fry who she was at 17, 18, 19, 20, 25, it's completely different from the Jen Fry at 38. And that difference has lost friends because I went from being black gen to black gen on the side of being radical like that. And that has lost friends. And I'm okay with that because that identity shift has made me realize more of who I am, who I want to be and who I want to surround myself with. And I think those are so many important things that people sometimes don't want to think about because we're so worried about the loss of friends who've been in our life forever and we've grown up with. And then we see that there's that tug and pull because we're having this new identity and they want the old one. And that's how it was. I was a college volleyball coach for 15 years. And the coach, Jen, that people knew is completely different from the Jen now. And so there are people that are like, I just want the happy-go-lucky Jen. Well, no, you're getting the happy-go-lucky radical Jen. 
And if you can't work with that, that's cool, but we can't be on that level. So for me, identity is like, it's so much. It's like I said, how, we view, how we're viewed um, and how we view the world. So this is really interesting because it sounds to me that there was a point in time where you, you've always been a black female. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me there was a point in time where that identity became really salient for mm-hmm. you. Where there, what, what was happening in your context to where you went from black gin to black gin? You know, it's interesting because there was nothing that like hit me. It was I was actually um, coaching at Elon, and I was you know starting to start paying more attention to race stuff to kind of give you a, fi- a family dynamic. Um, I was born in Canada. Um, I was actually undocumented. My mom took me across the border and raised me in Arizona for twelve years. Um, the only good thing that Reagan did is he did that law that if you've lived here for X amount of years, you can get your a path to citizenship. Um, and so I was undocumented, living in Yuma, Arizona, so five minutes from the Mexican border. There was probably, at any given time, 30% of my schools that were undocumented students would come across the border, go to school, go back. It was a very normal movement. Um, I mean, we grew up with lettuce pickers, fruit pickers. like So that immigration is where I live. The border is... So when people... I'm not the right person to talk to about border talk. A, I was undocumented. B, I lived right there in the mix of it. So I'm probably not the person that people want to get in conversations with. So I, I have like all of these different experiences. I grew up in a majority minority town where white was a smaller population but they still ran everything so it's what you see in south africa it's what you see in the south they were a small population but they still ran they were all the farmers they ran everything they had all the money um so i had that experience and then um i played sports so i was never the only person of color on the team i was always very lucky um i had all female coaches through all my college and high school which is very rare my high school coach was a black female like just very rare things occurring um I tra- i've been all over the world and then when i got to elon uh, i just after a few years started paying more attention to race getting involved in committees and then it's kind of like once that pandora's box is opened you can't shut it you can't put any type of tape and i started to pay more attention and i realized like this is what i need to be this is what i need to start doing and so i actually just decided to quit coaching I literally was like, I'm resigning in two weeks. And my mom's like, you ain't got a job. I know. Let's see what's going to happen. You know, that's wrong. Let me travel and figure it out. And I was super lucky. And I think one thing I tell people who want to take a chance, like take a chance, a parachute's going to jump. You know, a parachute will be right there. And some people are like, I don't know what's going to happen with this. I owned three houses at the time. And I just jumped, literally just closed eyes and just sailed off a cliff. And but luckily with the network and stuff, I was able to land a temporary job at the diversity center, Elon. And then um, that job ended. So I traveled the world a lot more and then ended up here at Duke. But once I left, I knew I had to get involved into race. And so at that point, like I jumped in fully. I did all the workshops. I really just soaked myself in doing this because I knew I wanted to do the work. And it was interesting because my mom is white and Jewish. The white side of my family is very wealthy. Very, very wealthy. My mom's always known she had a black dog, but not really a black daughter. And I realized it happened probably like two years ago. And I'm talking to her, and, and I travel the world by myself all the time. And I think uh, at this point, maybe I'd just been to Cuba. And, you know, she's mentioning how people always ask her, is she worried um, about her daughter traveling by herself? And she said, you know what? I'm more worried a cop is going to have a bad day. And that made me realize she's starting to get it. So we talk a lot about race now. We talk a lot about identity and those things. She sends me stuff. I told her I got pulled over and she was like, did you record it? Are you okay? You know, so like she's starting to see that now through my experience. So there wasn't like one thing, 
but it was like the realization, like, I need to do this work. I do diversity and consulting with athletics. I see that this is a space that's not just about diversity, but it's about social justice education. We need to educate from the top down. The admin, they need to be doing those workshops just as much as the student athletes. Because what we tend to see across all universities is that they want to give money to departments. They want to give money to student athletes. Go and do the work. But they're not doing it. And what people in top levels in, in athletic departments, athletic directors, they don't realize that we see them. We see that they're not side by side with us at Pride 101 or Trans 101. We see they're not side by side with us at REI. And it doesn't matter if you're doing the work together. You need to do it with us. I need to see you, at AD, as uncomfortable with this topic as I am. And so that's the work I do is really doing social justice education um, through athletics. Wow, Jen, that's really, really insightful. Because it sounds to me that you came to a point where you've got to take a stand. Yes. You've got to take a stand on your identities being as free as they can be mm -hmm. in a space. You mentioned earlier that some people left, you lost some friends. Mm -hmm. What do you tell a person who has an identity which carries with it a level of shame or oppression or they feel as though they can't be themselves inside of a space? Yeah, you know, I think that's tough. I think it depends on the state, the space it is, um, and can you leave it? So for me, when I, like I said, I have a full tattoo sleeve. When I was interviewing for jobs, every job interview I went to on campus, I wore a short sleeve shirt. I made sure that they saw the afro on the sleeve. There was never going to be a 9 a.m. talk, well, Jen, you know, we love your tattoos, but uh-uh. And so I wanted to make sure that every space that I was in, I met with the president, whoever, they saw my sleeve tattoo. And so I think it's, do you have the opportunity to leave that space? That's the first question. Like, do you have a real opportunity? Because sometimes people, they might not like the opportunities that they have to take to leave that space. They might have to take a small pay cut. They might have to move. And I think the thing at the end of the line is, what is your self-worth worth? Because I had a friend who didn't want to leave a bad situation because she had to take a big pay cut. And now she regrets that. Because she realized her self-worth and self-mental health is worth that. So I think you have to think about what is your self-worth worth? And are you going to have to hustle to make some extra money, but to be in a healthier situation? You know, I think like that's just the biggest thing. I mean, and, you know, I think the toughest thing, I don't feel like I can fully speak to like LGBT identities because you're talking about a different state. You're talking about being able to have a job, be able to marry who you want, be able to adopt kids, be able to feel safe of using a bathroom. Like there's that video of that trans girl um, up in Wisconsin in the bathroom and people breaking in. Like how are, how are those those teachers not getting busted noses? Like, they literally, this, this trans female is on the toilet, and they break into her stall. They literally, woman, it has a wire to break in. And so I can't speak to that, because that's a whole different level of safety and inclusion that I just don't know anything about. But what I can do is try and use my privilege as much as possible to create those safe spaces. So if I got to break some noses, I got to break some noses for some folks. If I got to use my voice, to say, wait, we aren't thinking about these identities or these people. We need to be more conscious about how we're helping them. And that's the biggest thing about the position I'm in now, um, working with the Undergraduate Research Support Office, is what identities am I missing that aren't be able to think that they can do research or publish research? And how can I get them involved in saying, yes, your research is valuable, and we want to make sure that you, A, know that there's a, a money available and opportunities available, and B, there's opportunities to publish. So it's like... There's stuff that I can't speak to, but what I can do is use my privilege to knock some heads and use my voice. Mm. 
Thank you for that. I, I really like that. That's true advocacy. Freedom is a constant struggle. I'm saying. Freedom is a constant struggle. Yeah. And so perhaps my last question slash last point of re reflection with you, Jen, is what do you tell those who are beginning to do the work and who are beginning to do the fight? What what can they look forward to in terms of struggle, in terms of uh, how the process looks? You know, I would say people who get involved, you will lose friends, but you will gain amazing friends. And the people that I have gained in the moving to the struggle have been phenomenal. And that, I think, has been amazing. It's A, people that maybe I've been like cordial with, they have just changed. And we are going on this journey together. And that's been amazing. Also seeing my friends change with me. My best friend is a blonde hair, blue-eyed head volleyball coach. And we talk about race all the time. And the stuff I'm doing with athletics, she is helping implement and seeing what works in her athletic department. And so she is doing that. The people I know, they are having those conversations. So people are riding with me. And I think people don't realize how many will ride with them. They just got to start going. And people are going to jump on. I think that's the most exciting thing. I think other also you're going to have so many people pushing against you all the time. Like, that's, you're going to have white tears, white fragility. You're going to, you're a racist. You're a, like, you're going to always hear that. That's essentially what happens when you call people, white people on what's going on. If you call them on, maybe they're not as woke as they think as they are, the language that they're using or the support that they're giving you. And then they, instead of them just, you know, saying, I understand, you get these crying of, I have black friends, I have a Black Lives Matter flag. You know, then they start to break down because they don't want you to go at them. They want to be able to say, we're in this together, but not that they have work still to do. So you're going to lose some white friends that don't agree with what you're saying you're doing because they know black people. And that's going to be okay. And I have white friends who, when I first started doing this, pushed and pushed and pushed against me. And the more I just talked, they and now they're riding with me. And I see some of the stuff that they're talking about, and I'm like, they're riding with me. So you're going to realize you're going to get some push that you're always, I think the biggest thing is you're always learning. You know, we start reading stuff and we're like, okay, we understand. You don't. Like, I am taking a teaching social justice class that has blown my mind. We learn different theories and pedagogies every week. And it's making me realize how much I don't know about lat crit, queer pedagogy, um, critical performance pedagogy, hip-hop pedagogy. Like, all these things that can help marginalized groups that I didn't know about, I'm learning about. And it's been phenomenal. So it's like, don't ever stop learning. And, like, I have to come to this place of I don't know anything. Because I'm going to learn a lot more versus, I think I know, like, I think I know something, but I really don't know anything. Well, there you have it. You've heard it. Jen Fry, it's been a pleasure to sit and chat with you. And perhaps I may, I may ask one more. One just, more. Just one more. One more. What would the Jen Fry of today tell the 18-year-old Jen Fry about activism, diversity, and social justice work? I think that's a good question. You know, I always like there's so there's a website that you can send yourself a letter that you'll be sent in like five or six years. And I like doing that stuff to see the place I was in when I was like 30, 31 to reading about it and thinking about your problems and issues and stuff like that. And I think um, would be to really like that Gen 5 18. I had like a bunch of piercings um, is to like fully own yourself. Because when I was 18, 19, I, came, I was raised kind of in a single family home. So I, you know, I was buying clothes that had all the logos on it. I was trying so hard to fit in. And it, like, to re, like to fully own yourself. 
and to understand that it will like it will turn out fine because when you get to college you're so worried about clothing boys um like like to just fully own yourself and I was just trying to find fight with my identity to figure out who I was so I think just to like just man it's gonna be okay just like fully own it and I think um it's interesting in Arizona like we even have MLK day till like 99 like we are so behind I think it's like there was I look back and I didn't see any social justice stuff and I wish I had of because if I would have gotten involved I know I would have had mom that would bail me out like, and I think I, I have, some people don't have that support. Like, if I go to jail, and my mom was always like, look, if you go to jail, I'm bailing you out. But I think if I did it for the right thing, because she's always been about that. Like, always, like, having a voice for people. You know, she delivered um, audio tapes to the deaf or to the blind. She, like, worked in a library to help, like, poor people. Like, she's always been an advocate in her own way. She helps foster care, foster, um, foster kids right now. She's a constant advocate for uh, court-appointed specialists for kids. Like, she does her own advocacy. And I think had I seen like a little segue of what this is, I would have jumped fully in and understand that there's going to be some carnage of friends and ideas, but keep going because the people you're going to be on the other side are going to be like, like the people I know now that do this work that we like found each other and do it together. It's absolutely phenomenal people. And I'm so glad I was able to do that. Wow. Jen, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us yeah so you know i'd love for you to follow me on my social media so my website is jenfrytalks.com um social media all aspects is jenfrytalks facebook twitter instagram snapchat be not really snapchat because i'm 38 and that's kind of difficult and kind of weird as well but i'm on that ig and facebook and trying to be better with twitter so follow me um read my articles i have a lot of articles on athletes like the kneeling athlete um race and recruiting just kind of how to change the landscape of athletics from looking at diversity, but looking really at social justice education. Thank you, Jen Fry. There you have it. JenFryTalks.com. Yes. Thanks for your time, Jen. Jen is interviewed by Shelvis Pond. All editing for this episode has been done by Kyle Kubosik. And the outreach coordinator for this episode is Ezra Uzun Mason. Today's intro and outro song is called All I Know by the artist Make AA Beats. In addition, this production is made possible by the Division of Student Affairs at Duke University. <laughs> <laughs>